Good morning today on this Thursday morning in April. I want to talk about politics. Oh, no. Pete, if I wanted to listen to politics, I would have tuned in to Rush or turned on Fox News. Well, I don't want to talk about U.S. politics, okay? Not today. But about Jesus. How's that? Because Jesus, when he was here on earth, as you know, was in a very political climate. But I want to talk to you about where he fits in, fit in, fits in to our political perspective and our lives. Let's consider this. That in Jesus' time, they're in the first century. They're in Jerusalem under Rome, under Caesar. But in, in the Middle East, in what we call Israel, there were four major political groups, as you may know. Okay, what were they? There were the Zealots. The Zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire through guerrilla warfare, through revolution, through military, right? Then you had the Pharisees. They were no fans of the Roman Empire at all, either. Yet they believed that the key was the community of Israel cleaning up, following the law, following God, and then God would deliver them from the Roman Empire. So it wasn't militaristic like the zealots. It was religious. And then you had the Sadducees. Remember that song? I don't want to be a sad, you see, because they're so sad, you see. But the Sadducees were, we would say, I, I hate to use this term on rogue grace, but were, quote, in bed, end quote, with the Roman Empire. They were given privilege, such as having um, the appointed high priest of the temple, and having positions around the temple religiously because politically they pulled the right strings. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get together, did not see eye to eye because of their way of going about the Romans. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the Romans, which made their, well, I was going to say, which makes their cry out, To Pontius Pilate, we'll have no one rule over us but Caesar. So ironic. And that would be if they did that, but it was probably a lot of the Sadducees that were saying that because that would more reflect their mentality, their religious and political mindset. And then the fourth group you have, so you have the Zealots who wanted to overthrow Rome and were criminal. So they often lived in the, the hills 
the countryside up in Galilee rather than in the city. Then you had the Sadducees who were, quote, in bed with the Romans in order to have positions of power in the religion. And they, by the way, did not believe in the afterlife, that there was a heaven or a hell. Interesting, huh? Then you had the Pharisees who definitely believed in a heaven and a hell, very religious, and they wanted nothing to do with with Rome except when they had Jesus crucified. And then you had the Essenes who wanted nothing to do with any of those three groups or anyone else. They lived out in the desert. Remember that? And you can see some of their ruins and their archaeological um, remains as far as their structure is concerned to this day. They have these incredible baths and, and houses in the desert. That's where they lived. Some suggest that's where John the Baptist came out of for that one year of his ministry in the public. He first was in a scene. And they had all kinds of writings that have been discovered about the end of the world. And so they wanted nothing to do with Rome, nothing to do with Jerusalem, nothing to do with people. Those are the four groups you had. And they all plotted against each other over the years during the time of Jesus. The zealots had nothing to do with the Pharisees, who had nothing to do with the Essenes, who had nothing to do with the Sadducees. Except in one case, they all saw eye to eye when they cried out, crucify him. But up to that point, they did not see eye to eye. But then, let me use the first three years of Jesus' life to demonstrate where these four political groups of his day in Israel were coming from. They would listen to his message and it was different than, than anything they had heard because up to that point, the Pharisees had the dominant voice in the religious circles of that time, even for the public, even for the general public of people. But now Jesus is talking and they're looking, they saw him as a dangerous um, compromiser. He's compromising when he doesn't wash his hands as he eats, they thought, they said. He's a friend of sinners. And Jesus went from town to town. He basically stayed away from the biggest cities. He went to Jerusalem for the, for the feasts as was in the temple, declared for in the Torah. But overall, he stayed out of the biggest cities. He spoke in parables. He quoted Isaiah because he was more than just a, a wandering preacher or a philosopher. Um, he was preaching the kingdom of God. So, Let's say you're a zealot. You would ask him, what's your plan? What's your message? You would hope that he would say, let's declare war on Rome. You're in a scene. What's your plan? What's your message? 
you would want him to say, let's just get off the radar altogether. If you're a Pharisee, you would ask, what's your plan? What's your message? He would say, you would want him to say, I should say, you would want him to say, don't be friends with sinners. If you were a Sadducee, you'd want him to say, we need to cozy up with Rome. One thing is clear. They could all agree, all four of those groups that I just mentioned, that the carpenter's son challenged us to rethink everything. He's not telling us to slit Roman throats or judge sinners or be blindly patriotic or go with the status quo. I think that that's important to establish because to me, in my opinion, depending on a person's perspective or viewpoint, it's easy and often done that people will take Jesus and make him into one of these things, a super zealot. And they bring all these politics into it or a super Pharisee bring all these laws and rules or a super Essene. Just let's pull out all together from society, from culture, from the world. And yet Jesus is a radical alternative to all of those, whether it's politics or zealotry or religion. So that's the kind of politics I'm talking to you about right now. When I say let's talk about politics, I'm not talking about Republican and Democrat. I'm talking about the kingdom of God and what that has to do with us concerning what that has to do with Jesus. Jesus was always preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That was his first recorded words in his ministry. And when he says repent for the kingdom of God is near, what do you think about? We might assume, oh, that means give up my sin or or get religious. But if you look at every time he said that, including the first time in Luke 13 and other places, it has nothing to do with turning from religion in and of itself or into religion in and of itself. He's saying, review your plans for living and change them up. You know that, um, for example, do you know that the Roman um, generals would often say, repent and believe in me? Josephus writes about this. In AD 66, the Roman general said that as he was threatening to destroy the city of Jerusalem, which he did some four years later. As Titus destroyed the city, he said, repent and believe in me. And so Josephus tells us that, who is a historian at that time, that that was a common phrase used by Roman generals, repent and believe in me. 
we think of that as, okay, repent from my sin. It does mean that, but it means repent from everything, from your prior thinking, from your prior worldview, and believe in Jesus. When it comes to this repentance and this call for uh, to believe in him, it's not just an invitation for Israel, but for all of us. It's an invitation for the world. And uh, I think we're back on the air from what I understand. If not, I'll just praise the Lord and uh, talk to myself. No problem. But uh, if you're tuned in, thank you. And we were discussing the kingdom of God in our last segment before we took a little break. (laughs) And uh, I was going to finish with the fact that the fact that Jesus says repent and believe, when he says that the kingdom of God is near, that's his first statement. That's his first word. That Jesus recognized, he realizes he is the king. He is the the son of David. And although it began as an invitation just for Israel, repent and believe the gospel. Now it's an invitation to the entire world. See, remember when Jesus told his disciples, when he sent them out two by two, the 70 not just the 12, but the 70, he said to them, don't leave. Don't encroach beyond the borders of Israel. Remain with the Jews. But then when he rose again from the dead, he said, go out into all the world and preach the good news. I guess it's hard to really put it all together because of our little break, but if you put it together, you find that the crucified and risen Messiah calls to all of us who are weary of politics and status quo and subculture and even religion. He calls to us to even not just rise above it, but to experience the kingdom apart from politics, status quo, subculture, and even religion. That's why I love him so. That's why I love the kingdom of God. Speaking of kingdoms, on Wednesday night I talked about the kingdom of David, of Israel, and it's been a great study for me anyways. It's been real simple, but I've enjoyed talking about the King of Israel, King David. And uh, last night, we uh, were able to talk about how David and Jonathan made a covenant together and how while David indeed, was at that time kind of anonymous. He was 
He was quiet as far as the political empire was concerned. Jonathan exalts him. And while Jonathan was exalted, he humbled himself with David. And it's just a beautiful interaction. I didn't really get to the point of where I wanted to go as well, that that's what we're called with the son of David, this interaction. Because it says that David loved Jonathan even more than women. Now that's saying something. David had a a bunch of wives. David could get around, and I say that reverently, but I mean, just look at Bathsheba. And I'm not saying at all that David was uh, gay or anything. I think it goes beyond any of that. I know it does when it says that David loved Jonathan even more than he loved women. When David says that about his relationship with Jonathan. So that was a a great discussion, I guess. I really am enjoying this story, this biography, if you would, of, of King David. Calling it the Gospel of David. The reason is because David was a new covenant man living in old covenant times. David was a man of the gospel before the gospel was even established. He was preaching it, believing it, even though it didn't all pertain to him. He was a guy under the old covenant. If he did well, he would be blessed and was. When he sinned, he would be punished and was. Now Jesus, the son of David, has made it so that when I do well, I am blessed, and when I do not do well, I am still blessed because it is by faith in the finished work of the cross.
So specifically, what I said last night was that with Jonathan, we see Jesus, and with David, we see Jesus in their covenant together. There in 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we looked at last night, in that Jonathan shows us Jesus was exalted but humbled himself. Remember that? As Jonathan did as Jonathan was the king's son but gives David his armor, his sword, his garment of royalty. That's what Jesus did. He let all that go. He released all of that to become a man, to become our brother. So even as Jonathan shows Jesus was exalted but humbled himself. And then you see David. You also see Jesus. Because in David, we see a man who was humble but then exalted. So in David, we see Jesus had humbled himself but then was exalted. So let me put it together. In Jonathan, Jesus was exalted but humbled himself. In David, Jesus humbled himself but then was exalted. David and Jonathan. And so, are you feeling exalted? Life will have a way of humbling you if you don't humble yourself. (laughs) Are you feeling humbled? The Lord is with you. He has not forsaken you. Like David, he's going to lift you up. They both are true. And so we look at the story, we looked at the story, uh, uh, that interaction and how David ended up or ended the encounter, the challenge of Goliath. And then Saul calls him in to his court and refuses to allow David to go home and asks, whose son is this? I love that question. Whose son is this? He is the son of God when you're talking about the greater than David. And I made the mention that Goliath was a more formidable foe, but Saul would be a truer enemy. Goliath, that battle lasted for an hour, but with Saul, it would last three years. And I see both of those enemies of the son of David, Jesus, as well. Death, yeah, it lasted three days. But the devil was after him for three years, and he defeated them both. So David defeats Goliath and overcomes Saul, just as Jesus defeats death and overcomes our enemy, the devil. And David never himself took out Saul. Remember, his men tried to a couple of times and David said, don't touch the Lord's anointed. And every time Jesus was tempted by the devil, he made no reaction. He let God the Father destroy the work of the devil 
when Jesus rose again from the dead. I love the Bible. I love being a teacher or a preacher, whatever you want to call me, of the Bible. Such a beautiful story. And you know what? I know about 3%, if that, of what I had in my mind before it melted down some months ago. Right now, you know what I get to do? I'm reading through the Bible aloud. Out loud. I'm in the book I just started, First Kings, as I'm going through the Bible, reading it out loud. And I have so many less thoughts, applications, points, and I'm not bothered by it at all. I just love to read it right now without all of the points and the, the philosophies, I should say, the, the, the theology of it. That's, it. That was wonderful. I have it in my notes. I, I do this radio program because of my notebooks. But there's something sweet about opening the Bible and not having any of that in my head. And just reading through the Bible. It is the word of God. And there are some things when I read through it, I go, I don't agree with that. I like, you know, I like that conclusion. Not because I'm proud of myself for not agreeing with it. But then I can say, so what? Let God be true and every man a liar. Just because I don't agree with it doesn't mean that it's not correct or not truthful. It just means that because of the way I've been in culture or my society or my mentality, I don't get it. You know what? If I did get it, I'd be more concerned than if there were things in the Bible that I don't get. Because God is greater than what I can get, quote unquote. We'll be right back after this.
me as having done every good work required for righteousness, even when I have not. In fact, even though I haven't, I am counted as having done them through the finished work of the cross. I might not be as kind as I would like to be, but I am counted as kind. I may not be patient, but I am counted as though I am patient. This understanding brings me back to the Garden of Eden because now I want to be kind and patient out of the sheer pleasure it gives me. It has been rightly said that we become what we already are, and rest for the soul brings greater works in this life. So that's a little tiny quote from my book, Rogue. No, my radio show is called Rogue Grace. The book is called It Is Finished, Seven Stops in the Quest for Rest. Because I wrote that right before I was hospitalized, I have no idea what I wrote. So I like to read it. I still agree with it, though. That's cool. The Lord bless you. Come on out tonight for our prayer meeting. It'll be in the upper room as we pray through the tabernacle together. Thank you for tuning in. May all glory be to the risen Savior. May all honor be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you agree? Then say amen. Amen.